c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Welcome to this week's episode of Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Janelle. You're not Janelle. I'm Janelle. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I'm not Janelle? You're not Janelle. You've never been Janelle. I mean, I could be Janelle. Have you been Janelle this whole time? <laughs> I, secretly, you've been Jessica. So this, Haven't you? This is an informative podcast on how to steal someone's identity. Yes. That's not the topic. Oh. <laughs> so I'm, I'm Janelle and she's Jessica. Probably. Probably. And this week, I got to pick the topic, which means we're talking about the mysterious death of Jonathan Luna, who was also not Janelle. I mean, he might be now. (laughs) He's missing, isn't he? You're like the Robin Hood of Janelle Como's identity. (laughs) Everybody, you steal from me and give to everybody. To everyone. Everyone gets my identity. Have you been wondering why all your ID goes missing? You just think you've misplaced it? Ooh, secretly. Secretly not. Right into Jessica's pockets. (laughs) Um, <laughs> Yoink. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so this is another case that I covered for crack.com. Everyone deserves to be Janelle. Everyone does. <laughs> I don't, I can't keep all the Janelle to myself. Um, Selfish Janelle. <laughs> this is another case that I covered for Cracked. So at this point, this podcast is basically like my chance to geek out about stuff that I couldn't fit into a 400 word Cracked article. Ah, uh, I feel so used. <laughs> Is that all I am to you? It is all you are to me. An excuse to and an, and delve into your nerdity? And someone who opens bank accounts in your my name. Your geekery. Yeah. True. Yeah. That's also what you your are Your credit me. score rating is perfect, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. It's, there's no point stealing someone's identity if you pay off the credit cards. I mean, I just, I like feeling responsible. <laughs> all right. Glad to be of service. It fills the hole. All right. Um, so the case we're going to be talking about today is kind of an obscure case from 2003 that doesn't get like a lot of attention on true crime shows or on their usual crime blogs, which is kind of strange because this is a weird fucking case. It is weird. It's exceptionally weird. And there's a, it's an active case. There's a $100,000 reward out there for information that's still unclaimed. So like in case this tiny Canadian podcast has more reach than the FBI or the, the Pennsylvania, yeah, the Pennsylvania state police, like... If you've got information about the case and you didn't know there was a reward, reward, you should go get it. Yes. We're going to be solving this single-handedly as Janelle Como. <laughs> just, we're just one person now. Yes. Who's the weird person in the bow tie in our logo? We are Legion. <laughs> oh, Christ. I actually, I had a conversation about our, our logo and with a woman who was calling me about a reference I, I gave to a, an individual. Specifically, the individual who drew our logo. Oh, logo, so it's, a- yeah, it's Ash Hulowitz. Ash Hulowitz. Uh, who you should absolutely look uh, up on the medias. Look up on the medias and get some art from if you want some art. But, uh, and, and she's like, oh, oh, like, she's like, oh, I, I'd ask you if you ever, you would ever rehire her, but like, I know, I know you hadn't hired her. And I'm like, oh, no, I, I hired her to do some art. And so I sent her to the, to the podcast page. And she's Did you like, pimp our podcast while giving a reference? Yes. Oh. <laughs> you you got a network, Janelle. Wow. You got to be ready. You got to be pressing some palms. Apparently so. <laughs> and and she's like, oh, this is really neat. It's a it's a picture of a blonde woman and and a and a brunette man. Oh no. Are you the blonde? And I'm like, 
And like there was a level of uncertainty when she said man that I'm just like, uh, yeah. oh no. You don't you don't know, you do don't know. you? And you're wrong. <laughs> eh, wrong. <laughs> that conversation got real awkward real quick after that. Yeah. I'm apparently we're both the blonde woman though. Yes, we are both the blonde woman. You've stolen my identity. Yes. Janelle is just an extremely good voice mimicker. It's just me alone in a room? This is a very strange impression. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can talk over myself. It's great. Ah, uh, the magic of recording. <laughs> Technology, you know? Oh, oh man. Um, so the Jonathan Luda case is actually so obscure that through Canadian search filters, when you Google Jonathan Luna reward... Um, the first thing that came up was a global news article about a BC family offering a reward for a missing dog named Luna. Aw. Well, the dog died. Poor dog. Yeah, the dog's dead. I mean, like, there's still a reward. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I know what happened to it. So the lack, the lack of Find a... Find the dog. Unbury the dog. Claim reward. <laughs> no. This is why you steal identities. I'm going to get arrested for, like, dog necromancy. <laughs> So the lack of attention around this case is probably because of the way the police handled it, which is sort of a theme when you look at, like, mysterious cases that have gone unsolved for a while. Which, like, I guess the lesson here is that, like, if you're being kidnapped and driven out into the middle of nowhere... Be interesting. No, just make sure that you seize the steering wheel from your captor and drive into a major urban area before you're murdered. That's the best way to make sure that your murder is solved. Just know... just, Just look up... In your area, wherever you go, the best homicide solve rates. And drive there. And drive there. Make your captor drive you there before they murder you. Yes. Don't let them kill you in a small town. Let your family have closure. Make sure that whoever gets assigned to your case has at least seen a corpse before. That's usually a good thing. Yeah, because we're going to get more into it, but the way that the police handled this case is kind of iffy. Yeah, because like the reason a lot of these cases end up mysterious and it's just shitty police work it's just shitty police work the reason why we don't have the answers is no one knew how to look for them well in this case this case is genuinely strange so jonathan luna at the time of his death in 2003 was a 38 year old prosecutor who on the morning of december 3rd 2003 was found drowned in a creek 80 miles from his home stabbed 36 times with his own pen knife Oh. And that's like, that's not even the weird part. The weird part is how he got there. <laughs> that's not the weird <laughs> that's part? That's not the weird part. That's kind of the, that's kind of the part that we can all agree on. Death by pen knife? Death by, no, he drowned. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was stabbed 36 times with his own pen knife, but apparently the, the primary cause of death was drowning. Damn. Yeah, damn. What is he, Wolverine? <laughs> <laughs> Something like it. So to get into background of like who Jonathan Luna was... Um, he was born in 1965 to a Filipino father and an Africa, African-American mother. And he was born and raised in the projects of South Bronx in New York City. And from a young age, like, his defining characteristic apparently was that he wanted to escape from this kind of life. He didn't want to live in South Bronx forever. He wanted to make something out of himself. Is that a defining characteristic? Apparently so. a sad reflection of racial politics in America? Uh, that, and also I'm trying not to call him a huge nerd. But he nerd. was a huge ner- nerd. Dweeb. So he grew up in this really rough neighborhood. Like a childhood friend who spoke with the NBC News reported that like as kids, him and Jonathan Luna would look out their windows and they would see people lined up to like to buy drugs the same way that other people line up to buy the new iPhone. So like sad neighborhood. Yeah. Sad. Nothing. Nothing good. Apparently. He apparently was a big old nerd. Heroin was the first iPhone. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, you need to buy it more often. <laughs> iPhones come out once a year. Heroin is a 365-day thing. 
Um, also, it will... it's, it's that whole planned obsolescence bullshit. All over With again. heroin? Yeah. What, did it fade like the, into fentanyl? Like, the reason... The, no, no, no. Like, the reason why heroin is good business... Oh, it's a terrible business. Don't I'm be, not. I'm not saying... Are like, you advocating and, for people to be heroin dealers? I mean, as long as you don't sample your own products, no. Do not. Do, do not. not. Do I not have been. I have been heroin. reading about the, hero, the opiate epidemic in the United States, and it is just... Page after page of sadness. It's here too. It's in yes. Canada. It's oh yes, sad absolutely. here too. But like nobody writes books about us because we're boring. <laughs> um, even our sadness is is, is not is, interesting. Is is dull. But like the reason, like the reason why heroin, you can make a lot of money with it, is because people need it every single day. Once you have a buyer, like you never stop having a buyer, and that's part of the why it's so disturbing. Yeah, I feel like you're you're just giving business advice. This just sounds like be a heroin dealer. <laughs> Come on, kids. No. How do you how do you know how you'll really make it? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not it. Smack. <laughs> do people even call it that anymore? I I, I don't again. Think so. You're a throwback from a bygone era. <laughs> I I I was not meant to be born in this time. You weren't. <laughs> Um, so Jonathan Luna's childhood friends said that he wore penny loafers to school, which was weird even for the time. Um, he would show up to high school in a suit and tie. Again, like super not necessary for the time. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. <laughs> in the 19, what would this be? Like 70s, early 80s? Yeah. And he loved to read. Nerd. Nerd. <laughs> um, he attended Fordham University in New York City and then went on to earn his law degree at the University of North Carolina. And while he was at the University of North Carolina, he met a medical student named Angela Hopkins and eventually married her. So she became an obstetrician. He was extremely proud of her and all that she had achieved in her own right. And they had two kids. So shit was going well for him. In 1999, he beat out thousands of other applicants for a position as an assistant U.S. attorney in Baltimore, which was the job he held when he died. And this is pretty hot shit. This is hot shit. Like, there was a lot of people that he beat out. And the judge who hired him, Judge Lynn... I'm gonna fuck this up. Bataglia? Bataglia? I don't know. Uh, Battaglia. Sure, that. Um, she was the G a- makes a ny sound. Battaglia. That's a stupid thing. It's S- Italian. Stupid language. <laughs> she was impressed by the fact that he came from such a rough background and that he understood why it was important to have safe communities and to mm. lock up bad guys, I guess. And like most prosecutors, when, most people who land in jobs like this, like prosecutors in Baltimore, which is a rough place mm. and has been for some time, they tend to just become, like, hard-shelled, get-off-my-lawn husks of human beings. Um, but apparently, yeah. like, yeah. this... It's a rough job. Th- this you job, like, it shit. scoops out your soul like <laughs> ice cream. With a melon baller. But apparently he was friendly, charismatic, cultured, and gentlemanly. So basically, like, he was awesome in every way that you can be awesome. Yeah, he sounds like a... Gen- he, like, he's proud of his... His wife, wife, his kids. He's pleasant. He's got a great job that he beat out lots of people to get. Yeah, like he sounds like an all-around nice dweeb. Yeah, which is what makes what happened to him even weirder. Yeah, like when you are this nice, you don't have enemies. You just have people who are jealous and want to be you. And not even the kind of want to be you where they want to end you. Well, he was a prosecutor, so this is, this is the whole thing. He may have had enemies. True. Um, so we do know what happened the day that he died. And the timeline... I, be- I bet he was even nice to the people he prosecuted. Pro- I don't know. Probably. He just sounds like an all-around... Like I he, would, he was probably a I want to get coffee with he this guy. He was probably a chipmunk. Except he died when I was 11. Oh, I was 13. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we probably had nothing in common. 
At the time, no. As, a, as an 11-year-old, I didn't hang out with a lot of Baltimore-based prosecutors. You didn't. I'm shocked. No, I'm shocked. As a child growing up in Edmonton, no. <laughs> I didn't, actually. I mean, you should have lived a little bit more. 11-year-old <laughs> Janelle, tisk tisk. Tisk tisk. Uh, so the timeline of like what was happening the day he died is really important. So at the time, he was getting ready to prosecute a drug case that wasn't really going well. So he was prosecuting these two men named, like, Dean Lionel Smith, and I shit you not, Walter O. Poindexter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the real name. You need a street name with that. Yeah, you need, you, to, you need to go by anything else. Anything else. Um, Any, yeah. Point Dexter is l- literally an insult for a pathetic nerd. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I thought. It's, it's a real name. And the two of them were facing charges for dealing heroin, which is not a good career path, Jessica. <laughs> Don't judge me. This is where it will land you. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, the two of them were dealing heroin out of their record label studio. Uh, they were rap artists or something of that ilk. This is just a stereotype about Baltimore. Uh, Poindexter was also fading, facing an unrelated murder charge. Goodness gracious. But, Did he feel like he had to live down the, down to the name? I guess, like, when you're named Poindexter, you fight it as hard as you can. <laughs> all the way to prison. You know, it's so much would have like so much could have been solved if her if his mother had just kept her mar- uh, her maiden name, or just pick something, or just pick something. Do you legally anything. have to give a child one of its parents' names, or can you just name it anything? I think you just name it anything, but most people just don't. Let's test that. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's acquire a baby and name it something, and name it something, and see what the government says. Yeah. Luna. Fight me, government. <laughs> so- I want I want to name my my newly acquired child. Don't ask me how. Uh, moon calf. McStevens the third. There's no two previous Mooncalf McStevens? Yeah. It's just going to come into this world as the third? Yes. The so, third is its actual last name. So, McStevens is the middle name. Oh, Christ. <laughs> I'm going to spell the third with a Y. Jessica, someday you're going to die. Like, when I picture, like, how you're going to leave this Allegedly. world. It's in a hailstorm of bullets after an eight-hour standoff with police. Like, <laughs> that's... That's how you go. Come, out. come on, I can't. I can't hold my bladder for eight hours. That's I'm coming out after four. <laughs> oh God! I'm just gonna be tired and cranky. I'm gonna my. I'm gonna have hypoglycemia. Just. I'm just like, give me candy or give me death. <laughs> I have a cramp. Let me go. I'm too sickly to, to for a life of crime. Yeah, you are. Um, but apparently, Poindexter was not. So, like, the problem that Luna was having in this case was that his key witness was a man named Warren Grace, who was a heroin dealer turned paid FBI informant, who had basically taken a steaming dump all over the conditions under which he was allowed to be a paid FBI informant. Oh, boy. They don't just let you, like, continue to be an unfettered heroin dealer while you're a paid informant. You have to yeah, that's meet a no-no. some conditions. That yeah. is a no-no. So, like, among other things, he was, uh, he had been caught escaping from his electronic monitoring device... Which, like, I assume he just chewed his own leg off coyote style. Yeah, very much that one horrifying movie. Yeah. 129 one. Days? No. I think there's more than one movie where someone chews their leg off. I think it was about off. hours. Saw? Anyway. I think you're thinking of Saw. Saw. <laughs> and he was also caught having unauthorized heroin in his car, which apparently... The, apparently there's there authorized. is authorized heroin. That's what I first thought. Apparently there's <laughs> authorized heroin. He had unauthorized heroin. And um, Jonathan Luna hadn't brought this to light or hadn't known about it when the trial started and the defense found out and was having an absolute fucking field day. So am I to understand that like when you get a deal with the feds, 
they, when they absolve you of your past crimes, that's not like a continuous thing. It's not really a blank check kind of deal. No. That's not really how this works. You can just be as criminal as possible. You have to sort of play by the rules or they it's can't like, it's, use It's like you. the purge. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, no, it's not the purge. You don't get to just go on a lifelong purge rules. That's not how this works at all. So on the day that Jonathan Luna, the morning before Jonathan Luna disappeared, he was fined $25 by the judge for being late to court. He said he had been at the hospital all night with his infant son uh, the night before, which is why he was late. And the news report didn't actually mention whether the judge was a heartless scarecrow stuffed in a robe, but I sort of assumed that they were. Yeah. That's kind of, that's harsh. They were, in in all likelihood, just a, like... A bunch of pigeons stuffed a, into a robe? <laughs> just just a, a, an old Navy mannequin that had gained sentience, but not a soul. <laughs> And it was like punishing humanity for the crimes we'd committed against it. The crimes of polo shirts and badly cut jeans. <laughs> so during lunch, Jonathan Luna offered this 11th hour plea agreement. He didn't really expect them to take it and was surprised when they accepted. The defense accepts this plea agreement sometime around lunchtime. And so on that day, he left the courthouse at 6 p.m. And by some sources, he returned to his office around 8.48 p.m. to drop the plea agreement. They had to hammer out the details, and they wanted it done as soon as possible. He had told reporters during the day that he wanted to wrap things up the following morning. Um, so at 9.06 p.m. that night, he calls Poindexter's attorney, and they talk for 10 minutes. Luna said that he had to go home and would return to the office later that night to finish drawing up the plea agreement. We don't actually know where- This is so pre-cloud. No, it's very like You pre-cloud. have to go back to the office to direct, continue drawing yeah, it up? Google Docs I don't think is a thing yet. Animals. We lived like animals. (laughs) Like, (laughs) just wolves. Um, So we don't actually know where Jonathan Luna is. Just dirt and effluvia all over our faces. (laughs) Tied to specific computers. (laughs) What what an age. I bet it was like the big boxy. Do you remember the big boxy plastic Macintoshes too? Oh, I do. I bet it was those. Oh, I fuck those it was, in particular. It was. <laughs> I remember I played a lot of Oregon Trail on those. Like the kind of like they had that kind of static even after you turned them off. That every time you touched the monitor, they just like just Stop a you. spark of lightning <laughs> yeah. would just arc into you. <laughs> All of my personality quirks are just the result of repeated electrocutions by an elementary school Macintosh. So when Jonathan Luna is making this call to Poindexter's attorney, we don't actually know where he is which is kind of a point of contention. So some news sources report that he was at his office when he made this call, but I've also found reports that his wife said that he didn't leave the house at all from 6 p.m. to when he went back to the office that night. So I don't really know. Yeah, odd. But, I mean, it makes more sense. We'll talk about this as we get into it, but it's an active case. Mm-hmm. So exact details are kind of hard to pin down. At 9.30, he left a voicemail message on Smith, which was the other defendant's attorney's phone, that said pretty much the same thing, that he was going to fax the plea agreement over before midnight. That fax never arrives. So at 11 p.m. that night, Jonathan Luna was at home and received a call on his cell phone. He told his wife that he had to go back to the office and return to the office shortly after that. We don't know who was on the other end of the phone call. We don't know what they wanted. If the police know, which I'm sure that they do, they're not saying. But so far, it's been a pretty typical day in the life of a grossly overworked public employee. Yes. The last day of his life wasn't particularly remarkable in any way. It was something that he would have done over and over again. Yeah, like, this isn't every day for him, but it's a normal part of his week. 
Yeah, he's a grossly overworked public prosecutor who spends a lot of time back and forth from his house to the yeah, office. Yeah, like he has a hundred hour work weeks. He's constantly on call. He's a stressed out kind of dude. You know, like... A- but a, apparently a calm dude. Like apparently he enjoyed yeah. his job. He handled it pretty well. This is not in any way typical, even if it's a, something that like a lot of people would break under the stress of. This is not an unusual week for him. He's been handling this kind of shit for years. Uh, yeah, and there was no real indication that something bad was going to happen. He wasn't acting out of character. Nothing had gone particularly wrong at work. He'd gotten his plea agreement accepted. Like, Yeah, like this is actually a good day for him. There was he, no... He makes this Hail Mary pass, gets this plea agreement accepted... He should be feeling good. There's no indication he's going to be dead in a creek in 12 hours. Like, not a lot of foreshadowing. Not and a you lot of foreshadowing. a little bit of foreshadowing. God damn it. Real life be more like fiction. Um, be consistent. Yeah. Make sense. So after 11 p.m. is the part where things get really fucking weird. So at 11.38 p.m., Jonathan Luna's car, which is a silver Honda Accord, leaves the parkade of the federal U.S. District Court building where he worked. Um, we know that he left his glasses and his cell phone behind on his desk. And it's worth noting that those are glasses that he needs to drive. Like, I don't know his exact prescription because I'm not actually his optometrist, but it's mentioned in every news source that reports on this case that he required those glasses for driving. Yeah, and he doesn't seem particularly irresponsible. Yeah. Like, if you can think of two more important items, your glasses that you need to see... They're up there. Like, and your cell phone... They're right next to your pants. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, they might be higher than your pants. Yeah. Like, I would leave the house without my- You can drive home without your pants. Oh, I was going to say, I, I would leave the house without my pants before I'd leave without my glasses. Like, yeah, you are not in active danger without your pants. No. And you can contact people without your pants, both of which are more important than having warm legs. Yeah, I would rather, like, not stumble out into the path of an oncoming semi-truck, which is about where my vision's at without my glasses, so- when it comes down to, like, what I'm leaving behind, like, glasses are at the bottom of that list. Yeah, and you might leave yourself, you might forget your cell phone, like, because this is back in the day where you don't have data, you're not constantly checking it. It's not sewn into your palm yet. It's not so, like, it is not fused directly into your hand, but you would notice if you're just, like, half blind. <laughs> Especially because he's a lawyer. He's on the phone constantly with opposing counsel, with judges, he's constantly on the... It's not like a toy. Yes. For most... Like, for most people in 2003, I think a cell phone is sort of like a fancy toy and a mm-hmm. way to tell, like, your husband to take the chicken out for dinner. But yes. for him, like, it's a vital thing that he needs to work. It is a requirement for his job. And he's, like, he's assistant district attorney, is yeah, he? Yeah, that's what he is. Yeah, he's assistant direct, district attorney. U.S. attorney. He's an assistant U.S. attorney. He's an assistant I don't know U- what the difference is. He's an assistant U.S. attorney... Uh, th- that might be federal rather than it is uh, federal. state. Yeah, uh, it's federal. It, yeah, it's 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 federal thing. As a requirement of his job, he has had this phone on him probably whenever he is not literally in bed or literally in the shower. Yeah, but nonetheless close at hand for years. Yeah, so it's unusual. And then at eleven forty nine, he crosses through the Fort McHenry Toll Plaza with his Easy Pass, heading north on one ninety five, which is the wrong fucking direction from his house. Yes. So things get weird really quick. And there's no no reason why he would not know this. No. And, well, yeah, most people know how to get home. I mean, <laughs> sometimes I just end up in Chinatown, and I'm scared, and I'm lonely, and I don't know where I am. That's at least, like, one wrong turn, though. Like, it's not, like, getting onto the fucking interstate. Like, you never just sort of, like, end up in Saskatchewan. I mean, 
you don't sometimes just apparently you lead a more exciting life than i do sometimes i just zone out and uh you're just like shit then you're in saskatchewan (laughs) god damn it again regina you go the the wrong way you should end up in bc (laughs) if at all possible you picked wrong that is the incorrect direction. <laughs> yeah. I actually had to like look up what the fucking easy pass is because it's mentioned over and over in this story. Mm. And like we don't have them in Canada. It's like in Canada, if you want to pay a toll road, you pay a blood toll of moose hide. But in the United States, or at least in the eastern United States, they have this very fancy device called an easy pass, which is basically a radio transponder that goes in your car. Yeah. So apparently it toll- might also have these in Toronto now. Maybe. It's more advanced than the rest of us and also more American. Mm. But we don't have them in Alberta because... Yeah. The University of Toronto calls themselves like the Harvard of the North and Toronto is obsessed with That's being- McGill. Oh, is it Harvard McGill? Harvard of the North is McGill. Is it? Well, they're all they're all pretentious. But like, <laughs> Toronto desperately wants to be New York and constantly like compares itself to New York. But here's the thing. New York does not compare itself to Toronto. <laughs> Are we? We're just gonna get angry letters from every. Fight me, Toronto! In Canada, we've insulted like Grand Prairie on this podcast. We've insulted Edmonton, where we live. Yes, we've insulted dangerous. Saskatchewan, like in this very repeatedly. episode, repeatedly. Um, we specified Regina. Well, I did. Yeah, well, like I, I lived in the Maritimes where you have toll roads, but they're usually cash. But apparently in the U.S. there's two lanes. There's a cash lane and an easy pass lane. And, like, the cash lane, you actually have to stop and, like, speak to a human, usually, um, or pay a machine. But Animals. With, yeah, with the easy pass, you don't stop. You just drive straight through, and the radio transponder automatically bills you. Mm. You have, like, a floating balance, which is, it's important. But, yeah, the, yeah, fu- the future is here. Basically, it means he didn't have to talk to anybody. Mm-mm. And it, do- it means that n- nobody might have remembered him passing through. Oh, you'll see. There's, there's, this, this gets weird later. So basically, we know the drive that he took that night based on where he enters turnpikes or toll bridges, toll roads. Um, so at 12.28 a.m., he passes through a toll plaza in Perryville, Maryland. In 12.46, he passes through a toll plaza in Delaware. So he's going north, and he is desperately far from home. He's not going the right way. Yeah, like he's, he's, lost. A, he's in other states now. He's in other states now. At 12.57 a.m. in Newark, Delaware, Luna stops and withdraws $200 sorry, in cash from an ATM with his debit card. And we actually have ATM security footage from that night that shows he was alone at the ATM. So it was him, he was alone, and he appeared to be acting calm and normally, which is remarkable for somebody who's taking cash out from an ATM in Delaware at 1 o'clock in the morning. Yes. When they're supposed state, to be at home. A state where they should not be. And he's also missed the no deadline. Yeah. reason to be. He's missed the deadline now to file this plea agreement he'd agreed to get in at midnight. Yes. Which so, is really unusual for him. Yeah, it, it's, it's a level of irresponsibility that is deeply out of character. Everything about this is out of character and fucked up. So at the earliest, Jonathan Luna would have entered the Pennsylvania Turnpike at 1.45 a.m. Some of this we don't really know. It's been largely reconstructed. We this know is guesstimation. It is guesstimation. We know that at 12.37 a.m. he enters the New Jersey Turnpike, which means he's now seriously far from home. Oh, yes. And 10 minutes later, at 2.47 a.m., he enters the Turnpike at Interchange 6A from New Jersey Route 130, which is just sort of numbers for me. But I like the fact that he's in a place called King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, Ooh. which is a bitchin' name for a census-designated place. It's not even a town. It's, Fancy. It's a census-designated place, I swear to God. Oh man, I want to live in a I census live in, designated place. I want to live in King of Prussia. I don't care oh, what yes. kind of designated place it is. That's, that just rolls off the tongue. It does. King of Prussia? King of Prussia. King of Prussia. I live in the King of Prussia. <laughs> <laughs> Odd. 
There's um, kinky, but I I can accept that. <laughs> you all right? You made it weird. <laughs> That's why you're on this podcast. I'm here to make you're it weird. here to make it weird. At 3.30 a.m., there's a disputed sighting of Luna. So the manager of a rest stop restaurant type thing, I think in King of Prussia, claims that she saw Luna. The police think that she's mistaken based on the times and distances between this rest stop and the next place we know for sure Luna was. But this lady is super insistent that she saw him. Um, Come on, random King of Prussia lady. It's hard to say. Is being from King of Prussia not enough fame for you? (laughs) Do you need to claim more glory? You gotta search yourself into other murder cases. Whether she saw him or not, this disputed sighting is not even close to the weirdest thing about this case. The last kind of time that we know where he is for sure is at 4.04 a.m. He passes through the Pennsylvania Turnpike at exit 286, which again is just sort of more meaningless numbers for me. But what's interesting about this is... It's Wookiee noises. Um, Jonathan Luna passed through the, thirst, the first three turnpikes with his easy pass, and then he inexplicably switched to paper tickets. So he switched into taking the toll roads. Yeah, odd. Even though he had an easy pass and wouldn't have had to stop, he switches to going through the cash lanes, which are clunkier and actually require you to stop where the other ones you can just go straight through. It's very odd. It's very odd. Like, see, the only reason I can think for that is like, would, yeah, like the easy pass would obviously like have an electronic identification of you. But there's still a, there's still records there's of who still passes through cash a lanes. camera. <laughs> well, and there's still, there's still records of who passes through cash lanes. They don't just yes. don't check cars that go through the cash lanes. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one, there's someone who saw you and knows that it was you driving the vehicle. And two, they probably have your license plate number. Well, yeah, because they know that it was his car. And what's interesting about the the last stop through the turnpike, this Pennsylvania turnpike at 4.04 in the morning, is that he handed over a ticket with a spot of his own blood on it, which suggests that he was already injured at this point. So again, like, there's no reason for him to be using cash at all, and he's handing over a bloodstained ticket. And he's just acting completely calm. We don't really know. There's not really a lot of information about whether these were, like, if this was a machine, if there even was somebody at the turnpike, or um, if they've been spoken to, if there's security camera footage. Like, again, this is an active investigation, so the police have not put all their cards on the table, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't find any information about whether they had footage of this. Like, I imagine they would have his license plate, and they would know, they know the exact time that he crossed through the turnpike. That seems like something they keep records of, but... Yeah, like, it, it is fairly easy not to get... Like, if you're not... Unless you're bleeding quite a bit, it's fairly easy not to get blood on things. Yeah, so we don't know. Most of my blood is on the inside. I, too, like to keep most of my blood inside of myself. Although sometimes I give bags of it to strangers so that they may benefit. It, it likewise delights me. <laughs> We need better hobbies, Jessica. Yes. Um, I've been drinking an insane amount of water all day, and now my pee is crystal clear. I am so ready to give my blood. I was going to say, where are you going with this? I am so ready to give people my blood. <laughs> I was declined last time I went in. She was. I was, de- I, I was dehydrated. Yeah, she brought me along as moral support, and I yes. gave blood, but you, uh, you couldn't. I, I was so disappointed. I was. I was. I felt so betrayed that they, they picked your you own and veins. not me. It's because my blood's yes. better than yours. So at this point, I've been drinking an insane amount of water all day. You could bottle my water, carbonate it, and sell it as Perrier. <laughs> <laughs> Your urine, you mean? Yes. Oh, <laughs> you need to stop giving business ideas because so far we have bottled piss and heroin dealer. <laughs> you give terrible advice. 
Um, with this case, though, it's worth noting... Call me, Zuckerberg. Do not. Um, it's worth noting that under normal circumstances... I'm going on Dragon's Den. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I have... I spend so much time keeping you from doing these things. You're exhausting. <laughs> Um, but if, with this case, it's worth noting that under normal circumstances, the drive from Baltimore to this toll station where he ends up with the bloody ticket should take about two hours. Luna's midnight ride took more than four, and we don't really know why. There's lost time in there, but we don't know exactly where he loses time or what's happening to him. Like, I, I don't suppose he was just, like, hanging in a gas station while he, he could. was, well, he, he was exsanguinating. He, what? Bleeding out. Yeah. Um, I don't know, because he was... Driving, apparently. Well, we think he was driving through this last toll station. We don't really know. And, like, again, something happens to him. We have no idea if he's sitting at some midnight diner drinking coffee for two hours or if somebody takes him out and beats him to a pulp on the side of the road. We just don't know. And if he's injured, why isn't he going towards help? Yeah, he keeps driving this bizarre route. So the next thing we know is that at 5.30 a.m. that morning, an employee of a well drilling company in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania was heading to work when he spotted a tiny red light in the woods nearby. And because this man had never seen a horror movie, apparently in his life, he walked toward it. <laughs> just with a, a very brave man. He's just like, sweet, there's a red light in the woods. Let's go check Ooh, that shit that's out. That's eerie. That's a little weird. Um, it was actually- I the, wonder if it's friendly. It, well, I mean, it was non-threatening. It was the dashboard light of um, Jonathan Luna's sedan, which had been parked with its front wheels hanging over the edge of a creek bed four feet above the water. And he just sort of assumed that a drunk driver had driven into the creek, which, I mean... Reasonable. I mean, depending on what's going on in Lancaster, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't exactly think, hmm, I wonder if the assistant district, like, district <laughs> U.S., like, sorry, U.S. attorney of Baltimore has been repeatedly stabbed. It's generally not my first assumption when I no. find a car accident, no. Um, you can actually find photos of the creek where he was found online. Like, not photos with him in it, you sick fucks, but, like, <laughs> just creek, and I think, like, calling it a creek is generous. It is, like, at best, a bunch of water trickling through a trench made out of rocks. It's not, this is not, like, a rushing body of water here. But when they found the car, the car was still running, and there was no sign it had been in an accident. Like, for all intents and purposes, it was parked here on purpose. There's no sign that anybody crashed into anything. It was just sort of had its front wheels hanging over the edge, and other than that, it was fine. Um, less fine was Jonathan Luna. His body was found floating face down in the water underneath the car's engine. Like, he wasn't pinned under the car. The car's four feet above him. And he was wearing a suit and overcoat, and he still had his court ID around his neck. Which was really handy for identification. Oh, I've... Corpses very... Are, <laughs> I told you he was considerate. Yeah, corpses are very rarely so well-labeled. <laughs> um, he had been stabbed 36 times with his own penknife, half of them to the neck, and he had fingernail marks around his wrists. Oh, boy. Yeah, he wasn't good. Um, he had blood... There was blood smeared on the driver's side door, the front left end of the car, and there was blood pooled on the floor of the back seat. And there's sort of, like, different... Yeah. So odd. It's odd. And different news articles sort of report on the blood differently. Some news articles will say that, like, this is an indication that he was attacked in the back seat. Other news articles say that, like, he was probably attacked in the front seat... And then the blood drained backwards into the back seat. I don't really know. I mean, I've lost shit under a car seat before, but I've never tried bleeding out in one, so I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, we sure. have not tested this. No. We do not have that kind of we're budget. Not gonna, no, we're not going to feel... I don't think you need a budget. I think you just need low morals. 
<laughs> you just need to like be willing to stab somebody in the front seat of a the sedan. The lawyer we cannot afford and do not have does not suggest it. That's true. <laughs> um, there's there, like that's so many odd details all in one go. Mm-hmm. Like one, it's really hard to repeatedly stab someone in the neck. They usually put their hands up. Well, you'd be expecting a lot of defense. They were. He was. The coroner reported that Luna's hands were shredded, and that his scrotum had been slashed. Rude. Rude. Um, And despite all the stab wounds, his ultimate cause of death was drowning. Although it's worth noting, his left carotid artery had been punctured, which would have killed him eventually, even if he hadn't drowned. Yeah, like he's far enough from medical attention. There's, there's no helping. Yeah. So his cause of death was drowning slash bleeding, I guess. But they. I think it was officially listed as drowning. Yeah, because, like, probably the bleeding didn't help him, like, get out of the water and not drown. No, generally, no, you don't want to bleed into a body of water. It's not going to help you. He also had a head injury, but they don't know if this was a pre- or post-mortem head injury. It may have been caused by falling into the creek. They don't know if he was hit by his attacker or if he just fell. Yes. The $200 cash he had withdrawn from the ATM was there. It was strewn all over the car, which begs the question of why did he take it out? Yeah, because if if he had just taken it out and like put it in used his pocket, it for something or used it for something, why wouldn't he just use his card? Why? Wh- what was he buying that he needed two hundred dollars cash? Well, and it also kind of rules out robbery as a motive. If somebody had Absolutely. been in the car compelling him to do this, why would you have him take cash out and then fling it all over the car and run off? Just wee like wee! like really expensive confetti. Um, a couple of hours after his body was found, his credit card was actually used at the King of Prussia Mall, and it has never been used since. Just the once. That lady! <laughs> the one, the one from, like, the diner? Yeah! She took his credit card and then implicated herself in the crime? Clearly. That's, she, That's why she remembers him. Because she's killed I've him? I've solved it all. <laughs> this is why you're not a cop. <laughs> that and the psych test. <laughs> God. Also, because you can't run without sounding like you're about to collapse. like like a like a broken dog squeaker toy. Yes. I was gonna say, yeah, you sound like a <laughs> muted accordion, <laughs> like a bellows they use for <laughs> for blacksmithing. Um, the, I am not well. No, the uh, the penknife was not initially recovered. They couldn't find it in the first couple weeks, and it was found at the scene in early 2004. They probably just didn't look hard enough. It was apparently slightly downstream. See, he made a major error here, driving away from a large populated yeah. center. Stay in the city and get murdered. I told you, that's Obviously. what we opened with. Well, it gets weirder, because somehow, when the FBI investigated this case, it was ruled a fucking suicide. Oh, yeah, was it? Federally, Jonathan Luna's case is considered a suicide. So, he, Jonathan Luna, yeah, just had, you know, like, a slightly stressful week. Kind of, you know, had a, had a good evening. Decided to just, like... Drive 80 miles from his home drive, and stab himself to death. Yeah, drive 80 miles from his home to a place he had no reason to be. Stab himself 39 times. 36. 36 times in the, in the neck, the chest, and the balls. <laughs> yeah, and then die. And then die. And well, just, like, jump into the river. Because yeah. he wasn't dying fast enough. Yeah. After puncturing his carotid artery. Yeah, that's kind of the theory. Well, sort of. Like, the theory is is that, like, Jonathan Luna was under a lot of stress in his personal life. Like, we we know that. For one thing, the, the judge who'd hired him, the lady whose name I can't pronounce, 
when she was around, she gave him glowing reviews, but she, shortly before his death, was appointed to the appeals court mm. um, a couple of years before he died. And she was replaced by a man named Thomas, oh my fuck, it's another Italian, De Biagio? I don't know. Where are we looking? There. We're looking there. Ah, yeah, it's it's Di Biagio. <laughs> okay, sure. They hired another Italian who hated Luna, and he made no attempt to hide it. So this man, whose name I'm not going to butcher again, he gave Luna poor performance reviews. He held him. Uh, he held a grudge against him because one or two times Luna had cut a deal um, with the defense that this man objected to. He actually tried to fire Luna on one occasion, and he only backed down after Luna retained a lawyer. So he was feeling so demoral. Yeah, this was bad. And Luna was feeling so demoralized by the whole thing that he told a friend about a week before his death that he was considering leaving. He was going to leave this office and go find a different job. Which, like, probably wouldn't have been hard for him. I mean... I imagine no. He had worked in New York City shortly after graduating as a lawyer. He had a great resume. Very well respected. He knows an appeals court judge who thinks he's pretty cool. Apparently. Um, the thing was, though, that shortly before his death, Luna had worked on a case involving a bank robber, wherein, like, in a very unusual move... The money that the bank robber had stolen was wheeled into the courtroom in plastic buckets as evidence. So they had three sealed containers of stolen cash that were just sort of wheeled into the courtroom, which is unusual. Like in most bank robbery cases, they don't actually make you look at the cash. Yeah, that's a bit weird. And just take a picture of it. Come yeah. On. Well, and after the trial, the reason that they don't do this is because after the trial, $36,000 in unmarked bills was found to be missing. Ooh. So they fucked up. Well, um, that's a bit of a fuck up, yeah. It had been left unsupervised, apparently. It wasn't guarded the way that it should be, and it went missing. One of, one of the containers. There was three containers. The one with unmarked bills went missing. So they just, like, publicly announced that these three containers had, like... And then stuck them in a closet. Insane yeah. amounts of cash. And then they stuck them in a closet somewhere, and someone uh, took them. They were just like, oh, yeah, I'll just put this by the paint. Let yeah. the janitor handle it. So a federal investigation was launched, obviously, and anyone who had mm. access to the cash was being asked to take polygraphs, including Jonathan Luna. And at the time, there was a rumor flying around the office that Jonathan Luna was $25,000 in credit card debt. And some people, some of his coworkers, apparently suspected him of taking the money. And he had been scheduled for a polygraph test, which he had more than, I think, at least once he had asked to postpone. And he didn't actually eventually live long enough to take the polygraph test. Like, we have this thing where, like, we tend to view people who fail polygraphs or refuse to take polygraphs very suspiciously. Polygraphs well, are pseudoscientific yes. garbage at best? Yeah, but, like, yeah. the thing about polygraph tests is they are basically based on magic. Yeah, I mean, we could do a future <laughs> episode on this, but polygraphs are, they have a... They are they're not legally admissible for yeah. a reason. You can't... They are, they are magic thinking and nonsense. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, people get nervous when you haul them into a tiny room and accuse them of crimes. Yes. What? Yeah. Like, what a polygraph test is not whether or not you are telling the truth or lying. It's whether you're nervous. It's whether you're nervous. Or you have a galvanic skin response. Like, it, it yeah. measures a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. You can actually beat a polygraph test by, um... Valium. Can you? I was gonna say you this. can beat it by pressing your toes into the floor as hard as you can. Because apparently, like, focusing on that... They'll actually, like, look for this when you're doing the polygraph. <laughs> because, like, apparently pushing your toes into the floor, like distracts you from whatever it is mm. that you're, the, whatever lie you're telling. So if you're not aware of the fact you're lying, you won't get nervous about the lie and you won't show the telltale signs. Also, apparently counting backwards from 100 in like units of three or something, like yeah, counting so not, backwards not by really seven. paying attention. Yeah, anything to distract yourself cognitively or physically um, can apparently help you beat a polygraph test. So now we've told you to be a heroin dealer and we've told you how to lie. <laughs> this is a great podcast. We, we, we fully expect that you'll all be millionaires in a week. Perfect. <laughs> 
Um, it's worth noting, again, that Jonathan Luna wasn't really worried about the polygraph. Most of his colleagues said they never actually suspected him of stealing it. The money, also, he's super busy. It makes perfect sense for him. Yeah, to for him to reschedule. He didn't really seem upset. Um, and then again, the money was poorly handled and it was left unguarded for long periods of time. And lots of people had access to it. It wasn't like they just singled him out. They were, they were testing everybody. Yes. Other stories about Luna's home life circulated after his death as possible reasons why he'd want to commit suicide. So he reportedly had a charge account that his wife didn't know about, which is generally not a sign that your marriage is going well. Mm, yeah. Not good. He also apparently had a profile on at least one dating site, which is also, again, mm, not, not, a, not a thing you sign up for when your spouse likes the sound of you breathing. Um, he had moved his elderly parents into an apartment shortly before he died and was taking care of them, at least financially. That had to be stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, he was married to a fucking doctor, so they both had incredibly busy schedules and very long hours. And juggling like the care of their two young sons was obviously very stressful. An anonymous source told the Washington Post that he had mysteriously come into $10,000 around the time of the theft, with no good explanation. But again, like when major crimes happen... If you ever go missing, your friends will fucking trip over themselves to tell pointless gossip about you to the tabloids. Absolutely. Yeah, if you ever turn up dead in a mysterious way, and like people you barely know, like that. Like they will suddenly be your best friend. Yeah, somebody you sat next to in the eighth grade is all is going to be splashed across every news network in the country. Yes. Talking about how they knew you well. So it's it's important to take all of this shit with a grain of salt. Because it's hard to tell how true any of this is. And that's is. not even counting random, like, random attention seekers just crank calling into hotlines. Oh, yeah. Like, the, the press will take anybody. Mm. They won't. It's hard to verify how well you knew somebody. They'll take, and the press are so desperate for these high-profile crimes to, to find sources who know something the cops aren't saying. Yeah, they'll listen to anybody. Oh, yeah. So if you're, like, that person you didn't really like in the second grade wants to just slander you for attention mm-hmm. and money... They can yeah. pretty much do it. And if CNN doesn't take them, the Daily Mail will. Oh, the Daily Mail will take anybody. <laughs> anybody. They will interview your dog. <laughs> and that your dog will slander you. Um, so all this stuff about his infidelity, his financial problems, um, the stress that he was under, the polygraph, all of this stuff, like, it's hard to verify how true any of it is. A lot of it is based on anonymous sources who talk to tabloids or newspapers. And it's entirely possible that every single bit of it is slander. Yes. We don't actually know whether any of this stuff is true. Um, So the FBI have, this is their theory. They theorize that Jonathan Luna was under all of this stress from various things that were going on, mostly the polygraph, and that he was attempting to stage a kidnapping, either that he was going to disappear and start a new life, or he just wanted to garner sympathy from his employers and his family, that he got carried away while he was stabbing himself, and that he nicked an artery, fell into the creek, and then bled out and drowned. Um, their reasons for this are that many of Luna's wounds are shallow because he was stabbed with a fucking pocket knife. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, which they're calling hesitation wounds, which is something that you see in a lot of violent suicides. Um, when somebody commits suicide in a particularly violent manner, there's normally sort of a like, eh, I don't want to do this. Yes. There's these very shallow hesitation wounds where they're like, not sure until they work up to actually killing themselves. It's basically like when you're trying to test out a zap pen. Like one of those those shock devices. Like you find yourself like. Mm-hmm. I think that's just you. I think you're the only one who stabs yourself with a shock pen to test it. I was gonna say more like dipping your toe into a hot tub before you jump in. Yeah. Or a pool, you know that kind we're of. We're very thing. different people. We're, we're different people. We have different levels of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like when I was at a um, sex paraphernalia shop the other day. What? 
I, I had my reasons. You're just going to start this? Okay, all right. Sure. <laughs> I had my reasons. Yep. I, I decided to test out some of the riding crops on my own hand, and well... Uh, oh, I picked the wrong moment to take a drink of water. <laughs> it stung quite a bit. I bet it did. I was not expecting quite that impact. <laughs> You're just whipping yourself with a riding crop in the middle of a sex tour? It tingled. Okay, I'm going to take your word for that one. Um, I mean, I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it either. I will never get it. I just host a podcast with you. I don't condone what you do. Um... <laughs> The, the FBI's other big thing is that if Jonathan Luna was murdered by somebody else, why would you go... Who goes to a murder without a weapon? Like, he was killed with his own penknife. Yeah. Very few people show up to murder somebody and just hope the victim will have a weapon on them. Like, yeah. Can I borrow this real quick? Never mind if someone had ambushed him and forced him to drive, or if someone had lured him out there. You generally don't bring fists to a murder. You usually no. bring something else. No, like, like... And, like, this was not... If, if this was a murder, it probably wasn't just, like, a spur thing. It wasn't like, oh, hey, you know, I'm up early for once. I might as well go to the gym. Or, like, I might as well murder this Jonathan man, Luna. Yeah, I might as well take somebody on, like, a cross-multi-state road trip and yes. kill the shit out of them. And just kill the kill the fuck out of them. Yeah, you usually bring a weapon to that shit. Yeah. Also, probably, stepping back for a moment, problem with the hesitation wound thing. He, are they saying he stabbed himself in the balls? Well, that, we're kind of get, we're gonna get into this, but yes, they are. They're saying that he slashed Gosh. his own scrotum, which is actually evidence for the other side. We'll kind of get into this. Yeah, a penknife being the murder weapon is a sad murder weapon. Very few murders are committed by penknife. So the idea is that like Jonathan Luna just like didn't have anything else. He just had the knife on him. The reason that they think that it was self inflicted was because like who drives across multiple states to murder somebody? Like, I don't think there's a significant difference in laws between Maryland and Pennsylvania. Why drive across multiple New England states in order to kill somebody? Yeah, it's actually worse for you if you know anything about the law, well, because yeah. that makes a federal issue. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't transport somebody across state lines with the intention of killing them. I don't know if that's an, a specific crime, but it feels like something that should be a crime. I think it's a specific crime. I think it's a, like kidnapping, and it's worse. Yes. But also, when you're hanging out with your murder victim for four hours, you're giving them four hours in which they can like attract help or escape. Yes. If you're murdering somebody, you don't... It is risky. You don't want to hang out with them in a car across numerous state lines and going through numerous toll roads. You're giving them a lot of opportunities to jump out of the fucking car. I don't know. I think it really builds the intimacy. Yeah, so when you kill somebody, you you tend to do it. And the fact is, like, we know that Jonathan Luna wasn't killed at the start and then just driven to Pennsylvania because he's on camera at this ATM taking out cash. And apparently there was a second ATM stop somewhere along the line where there may or may not be video. The police aren't saying. But, like, we're pretty sure that he was driving the entire time. Yeah. He wasn't just, like, in the trunk. Mm-hmm. He's and, alive. And and generally speaking, like, especially first-time murderers, yeah. which, if this was a murder, it's not an- this is not an expert individual. Well, no, because he walks to the ATM alone. Yes. Like, From the first footage, not, we know that. He's not being physically controlled, and if this was an expert, they wouldn't try to kill him with a fucking penknife. Yeah, so this is- these are all the weird things that kind of point to it not mm. being an actual murder. Yes. If you- if you were an expert at this, you'd do it a lot better, and, like, what I mean is, like, 
Yeah, you the don't fuck this up. The inner murderers get nervy. <laughs> yeah. And they don't want to spend a lot of time, you know, getting to know their victim and empathizing with them. No, you don't want to. It wanna, makes it worse. You don't want to go on a weird buddy cop road trip. You don't want to do that kind of thing. <laughs> also, the fact is that neither the cash nor the murder weapon was removed from the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you're a shitty fucking murderer, you generally realize it's not a good idea to leave the weapon at the scene of the crime. You take that shit with you. Yes. And dispose of it somewhere else. And you definitely take the cash because if this looks like a robbery, they're less likely to look for somebody who knows this guy. Yeah. They kind of, for the most part, are good to assume that. There's also, it's, I mean, it's worth noting, there's no physical or circumstantial evidence of a second person being in the car. There is no evidence. There's no, they've never found any trace of, like, there's some reports that say there was a partial palm print on the outside of the car and that there was other, someone else's DNA outside the car but, like, other people touch your car yeah. is the thing. It's it's not like it was a freshly waxed car. Yeah, like, someone might have tripped three days before and, like, propped themselves up with it. Or maybe just passed by it. Yeah, so there's... The police are saying that there's no physical evidence of a second person being in the car during this drive. We don't... Again, we don't know what they have. It's hard to say. I want to preface, like, all of this... Sort of, I mean, this is not a preface anymore. The, the time for that has passed. But I'm going to say that this is still considered an open investigation. Interface? Interface, I guess? Yeah, so the FBI thinks that this is a suicide, but the Pennsylvania State Police heavily disagree. This is still an active homicide investigation in the state of Pennsylvania. And the thing you have to know about, like, active investigations is that police almost definitely have holdback information in this case. Yes. So holdback information, whenever there's a high-profile crime or a crime that's unusual in any way crazy people come out of the fucking woodwork to talk about Mm. it so people will come out of like the fucking woods to confess to strange murders all the time and their motives are different some people are just genuinely crazy some people want attention sometimes like currently incarcerated killers will confess to crimes just to bump up their numbers um people people are strange but people confess false confessions are a huge problem in law enforcement So in order to weed out um, false confessions, the police hold back information about a murder, um, especially info that only the killer would know. Because if the person who is confessing to you doesn't know the holdback information or they get it wrong, you know immediately that they're a crazy person and you can just quietly escort them out. Yes. You can safely ignore them and they're blathering about having killed Princess Diana. No, exactly. So there might be details about the Jonathan Luna case that tie the whole thing up neatly. There's a lot of open questions that we've been like stuck on through this whole thing. And we won't really find out what those questions are, what information the police have, unless somebody is arrested for this crime and brought to trial. So with the local police, was Jonathan Luna murdered? Again, it's hard to say because... Just like there's a lot of questions about why this is a murder, there's a lot of questions about why the fuck this would be a suicide. For one, who drives 84 miles from their home to commit suicide in a creek behind a well drilling company? Like, yeah, it's odd. It's odd. If he wanted to kill himself... Unless or... he had, like, a specific bias against that particular well drilling yeah, company. Yeah, fuck this county in particular. <laughs> there's no real reason. Like, I mean, I can understand he was a federal attorney. Maybe he wanted to drive out of his own, uh, his own district, but... Why drive 84 miles across numerous state lines? Why go to Pennsylvania to stage a kidnapping? Yeah. It doesn't he, he make a lot out, of he sense. He can get outside of the st- state. He was already outside of the state about an hour after he started driving. Yeah, why? Or, or give or take. But, like, why go all the way to Pennsylvania 
why take so long? And why did the drive take four hours? Yeah. If you're going to kill yourself or you're staging a kidnapping, again, why would you dawdle? Like, the longer you drag this out, the more chance you're getting of people spotting you, of somebody remembering you, like, you... Of of blowing your entire plot. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to sort of dawdle on your way to fake a kidnapping, especially if your plan is to fake it. Again, like, the federal police aren't saying that Jonathan Luna went out there to die. They said that he went out there to make it look like he was going to die. And then he fucked up. Which is still an incredibly odd thing for an intelligent, rational person to do. The whole thing is very strange. Especially because, like, he would have had a lot of knowledge of criminal issues and would have known how hard that is to fake and how easily it could come out if he did succeed. Well, and there's other big questions. One, we have no idea who called Jonathan Luna on his cell phone and prompted him to return to the office. If you remember way back from the beginning of the podcast, on the night he disappeared, Jonathan Luna gets a call at 11 p.m. at home and says, I have to go back to the office. 38 minutes later, his car, like, he had to drive, he gets the call at 11, he drives back to his office, is not there for a very long period of time, and then at 11.38pm, his car's leaving the parkade and he's gone. So we don't know who called Luna on the cell phone that night, and we don't know what they said to prompt him to return to the office. If the cops know, they're not saying. Um, Secondly, like, as a person who wears glasses and is not allowed to drive without them, I think we both are, actually, people who wear glasses. Can you drive without your glasses? No, I cannot. No, neither of us can drive without our glasses. I mean, I can, but that's a very technical can. I, I am not legally I allowed to. I feel like to. that's not legal. Do you have the little A on your driver's license? Um, I don't know if I've ever really looked at it, but like... In Alberta, they put a, they put a little condition on your driver's license if you have to have your glasses. Or, or corrective, I wear contact lenses because I'm vain. Mm. Those are harder to forget. You have to peel them out of your eyeballs. <laughs> but... Um, as a person who needs corrective lenses in order to drive, that's like, that's not shit that you forget. Because again, remember, he's driving at night. Driving without your glasses during the daytime is terrifying enough. Driving at night with no glasses is terrifying. It is disorienting and and bizarre. He's going 84 miles. And if he knew that he was going to just go on a cross-country trip, why would he leave his glasses I mean, presumably if he's staging a kidnapping and he's doing it of his own accord, he's not under really any kind of deadline. Yes. If he gets out to his car and realizes, oh, fuck, I forgot my glasses, he can go back inside and get them. And it would make sense to leave the phone if he's faking a kidnapping. Yeah, that's sort of that'll less strange. him. Yeah, but the glasses? No, that's bizarre. That's really bizarre. Why wouldn't he go back and get them? And if he really needed them to drive, how did he even get to Pennsylvania without crashing? Mm-hmm. Or without at least fucking up, like yeah, or or, or having someone remember him driving like, erratically, driving driving erratically, because you know, like depending on how blind he is, he might have trouble staying between the lines. He might, you know, be constantly squinting. He's probably driving a lot slower than yeah. He should I was gonna be. say he'd be driving a lot slower, and I don't know that there's any note that he was. I think he sort of makes it between certain turnpikes in about the expected period of time. Yes. Um, and I don't know about you, but like from my experience driving, like if I am driving blind, I am driving way below the speed limit. Oh, nobody trusts me to drive glasses or no. Mm. Nobody trusts me to drive in any conditions. But yeah, people sometimes trust me to drive, but they're wrong. <laughs> the idea that you can drive actually keeps me up at night, <laughs> and it haunts my dreams. <laughs> but I mean, I feel like it's possible that Jonathan Luna wasn't driving that night. I feel like it's possible that somebody forced him to hunch down in the back seat. Or something to avoid being seen, and somebody else drove the car. But I don't know. I'm not a. I'm not a fucking cop. The police also see that he's calm in the ATM footage, and they kind of take that to mean that he's there voluntarily. 
But I think it's also important to remember he's an exceptionally calm person in general under pressure. He's a prosecutor in Baltimore, which cannot be fun. And he grew up in the Bronx. Yeah, and he's also calm about his upcoming polygraph test, which would be a really stressful thing to deal with. And by all accounts, he was handling that stress well. So I think it's entirely possible that he was just calm, no matter what, even if he was being kidnapped and compelled to go out there. There's the whole thing about switching to paper toll tickets. Like, why? It's when you look at true true crime blogs and forums that discuss this case, because there are, they exist. A lot of people kind of take this to mean that there was someone else in the car who may not have known how the easy pass worked. Somebody who didn't understand how to activate it or didn't understand that it was automatic and just chose to go through the ticket tolls instead. Because like, there's no reason to switch to paper tickets. Easy pass is, I mean, it's easy. You just drive through. You don't even slow down. Going out of your way to go into a cash lane is actually costing you time and is forcing you to interact with a machine or person. So why the switch to the paper tickets after the first three toll stations? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. There's blood on the final toll ticket, which indicates he was already injured. So if you were planning to drive out to the woods and kill yourself or like fake kill yourself... Why would you stab yourself while you're still driving? I mean, you want to save time, you want to be efficient. Generally, people don't want to have blood loss while they're driving. Yeah, generally not. It's generally not a good idea. Even if you're faking your kidnapping, you typically don't want to, like, multitask here. No. This is not a a place where efficiency is what you're going for. You especially do not want to be half blind and woozy from blood loss while you're driving in a strange state at night. Where somebody might see you. Where somebody might see you. And this, again, the drive took four hours when it should have taken two. And to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense that he would drive for a bit, stop driving, stab the fucking shit out of himself, and then go back to driving. That doesn't feel like a good itinerary. Yeah, it's weird, it's illogical, it's strange. And then again, something that a lot of crime forums bring up is like, why would any man stab his own testicles? Even as somebody who does not, in fact, own yeah, testicles. Yeah, neither of us. There are zero testicles between us, but I yeah. wouldn't want to stab them. No. 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 That's like, not kind of the, that's not an injury you typically do to yourself. And you do not walk that off. <laughs> no, you don't. But like, even if you're trying to like and fake like, stab yourself, that's extreme. And like one of the stab wounds was to his carotid artery. So we have like, what? He stops, he stabs himself a couple times. He keeps driving. He stabs himself some more. Yeah, if, I mean, I feel like if you stab yourself in the scrotum, you're not driving anymore that night. No. That's it. You're done. Absolutely not. You're not continuing to drive. You're not doing drive. anything. You're, no, you're not. You are, you are you're, howling, you are crying, and that, that's, all, it's, that's all your time. If this is a self-inflicted plan, I feel like the first time you stab yourself in the scrotum is where you abandon that plan. You just <laughs> yes. drive to the hospital. Y- you are done now. You fucked up. <laughs> the thing is, is that like, wounds like that in a lot of crimes are kind of something that you do to inflict pain and humiliation on somebody. Yes. Like, wounds to a man's scrotum are usually done as an act of cruelty. They're not self-inflicted. Yeah. It's like, something you do if you really want to get somebody where it hurts. Literally. Yeah. yeah like, and like, spiritually like, and like, mentally. And this is not just, like, wanting to hurt them. This is despising them. This mm-hmm. is degrading them. When you when people try to stab themselves or do these kinds of things to themselves, they're not looking to inflict the maximum amount of pain. Scrotal wounds are the maximum amount of pain. Yeah, like if you just want to make it look like someone was trying to hurt you, yeah. you go for like center mass, you go for limbs and, and, and body. Yeah. You do not go for your neck and you no. do not go for your scrotum. Well, I don't know about the neck, but scrotum's definitely out. And there's also, there's a lot of weirdness about the coroners. So there was two coroners that examined Jonathan Luna's body. 
The first one reported that his shallow, like that he had those shallow wounds on his arms um, and his hands were defensive wounds and that his hands were shredded. Right. Like, which seems like something it would be difficult to do to yourself because like, how good are you with a slippery, bloody pocket knife in your non-dominant hand? Because if both your hands are shredded, you've got to switch to your non-dominant hand at some point. Yes. How good are which you with that? Which you've already fucked up with your dominant hand. You have a bleeding scrotum and now you've got to stab yourself with a slippery knife with your non-dominant hand in your opposite hand. Yes. I feel like you're not usually good at that. Yeah. Like the more, and like the more you fuck up your hands, the harder the rest of the stabbing is to do. Yeah. And that's assuming you fuck up your hands first, which would be the most sensible because all of the other stab wounds are the more dangerous ones. Yeah, so the first coroner looked at these wounds and said they were definitely defensive wounds, this man's hands are shredded, and he ruled the case a homicide. And then when the second coroner looked at the body, he's the one who kind of first pushes the suicide theory that these are in fact hesitation wounds, and that this is a man who self-inflicted injuries. This is a man who did this to himself. The first coroner will not answer questions about the case, and he claims he doesn't even remember it, which is bullshit. Yeah, you're 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 a coroner in Pennsylvania. Lancaster County, Lancaster Pennsylvania. Lancaster County. You found a man with a shredded scrotum and 36 pocket knife wounds floating face down in a creek. You remember that shit. That would be vivid. I wrote about this case, like, I mean, when I first proposed- You may not mem- remember your first kiss. You remember stab wound scrotum guy. Most people remember their first kiss, Jessica. Every now and then you fuck up human behavior. This is one of those times. People remember that shit. But, like, it seems like a case that you couldn't forget. Because I initially proposed, like, I wrote the proposal for this cracked article probably going on two years ago now. And when I was thinking of, like, cases to mine for podcast episodes, this is the first one I thought of. You mentioned this in passing to me in a cafe over a year ago before we even discussed making a podcast, and this is fucking vivid. <laughs> yeah, you still remembered this case when I brought it up to you. Like, this is, a, this is an unusual case. Yeah, like, you said Jonathan Luna, the attorney who went missing. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's notable. Um, stab wound guy. Stab wound guy. There's actually a lot of people involved with this case who will not speak to the press, including the federal and local police, which you can kind of understand. The press have fucked up enough cases. The whole thing about holdback information is that, like, journalists will mine for it as hard as they can. Mm -hmm. Lots of journalists have accidentally fucked up and revealed holdback information. So the fact that the FBI and the Pennsylvania um, state police won't talk to the press isn't so remarkable. But Luna's family, his former boss, his wife, and the first coroner refused to speak to the media. And I get that it's an open investigation, but, like, it was 14 years ago. Yes. 14 years have gone by. There are people still interested in this case, and nobody's really talking about it. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I don't really know how unusual that is, but it feels unusual to me. Yeah, like, normally you can at least get the family to give some kind of soundbite. Yeah. So in this case, like, at the end, there's a lot of information we just don't know. I don't know if it's possible to spend four hours in somebody's car and not leave a physical trace. I don't know how possible that is. I also, I don't know how tight the security was at Jonathan Luna's office, if he could have been kidnapped or coerced from his office. I, yeah, like, this was 2003, but then again... This is, yeah, this is post-9-11 America. Yeah, but, the, like, it's an attorney's office post-9-11. But, I mean, at the same time, like... A lot of government lawyers today work in basically unheated tin sheds with rats. Yes. Because... Mostly defense attorneys. Mostly defense attorneys, but, like, a lot of federal buildings were poorly constructed and had bad security, even in post-9-11 America. And this is Baltimore. Yeah, because... 
like you can reasonably expect if you're super famous and you're always on the television and everyone, every household knows your name that you might get death threats. But when you're the assistant, well, let's just say like attorney, people assume that Jonathan Luna naturally had enemies because he was a prosecutor, but like very, very few prosecutors are ever murdered in work related cases. It's the vast weird. majority of prosecutors never get murdered. Like, I would hope so. Yeah, or nobody would fucking do it. But yeah, like it's it's important to remember in all of this that like yeah, it seems to make sense that like somebody would murder a district attorney. This almost never happens. Yeah, like an assistant U.S. attorney. Most people like even if they resent the guy who put them away, don't kill them. Don't kill them. They understand that that's bad, and you're gonna get caught. Yes. Usually, I guess not if you're Jonathan Luna's killer. Unless it's Jonathan Luna. We don't know. I don't know if Jonathan Luna routinely drove without his glasses. Some people need glasses to drive and they just don't fucking do it. Yes. I don't know. I can't tell you. I don't know if there's security footage at the toll stations. I don't know. Basically, all the information I know about this case has been laid out in this podcast. And yeah, based on the information we have, I don't know if it's a murder or not. It's just too hard to say. I think probably it was. I'm going with the it was theory. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that down. I don't know. I'm I'm all for like stabbing yourself in the genitals in a bizarre bizarre attempt to commit su- like pretend to commit suicide. That has like less to do with the facts of the case and more to do with like that's what you want to have happened. <laughs> that was not an appropriate place to laugh. <laughs> you sound like a Halloween decoration, like one of those motion detective ones that like freaks oh, yeah. the shit out of kids. Oh yeah. That's what I, you I sound remember like. those ones. My neighbor had one. Yeah. I did not care. Apparently it. it's rooted deep in your subconscious. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the Jonathan Luna case. And I want to end this off by reminding you that again, there is a $100,000 reward out there for information on the case. If you have any, I don't, there's, I don't think there's a great chance that our podcast has a greater reach than like the Pennsylvania state police and all of the associated news outlets that have already covered the case. I don't think this podcast has a better reach than the cracked.com article where I also mentioned the reward. But just in case, just in case there's like yes. some strange glitch in the universe where you have information about the Jonathan Luna case in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania in 2003, and you had no idea that the cops were still looking for information, they are and they will pay you for it. Yes. You should probably go forward. Mad Bank. Yeah, Mad Bank. You, you can, can afford so much ice cream and so many riding crops. You can renovate the... Sh- oh my God. I was going <laughs> to say you can renovate your kitchen. You can put a new kitchen in, but you went with sex toys. I mean, that's not what I would use it for. But they're still pretty neat. This is Jessica's attempt to get us sponsored by adamandeve.com. Sponsor us! I want to hawk dildos! <laughs> Alright. That seems that's great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I go. don't know what they're for, and I find them confusing, but I will sell them for you. Oh yeah. If you don't know what they're for. I mean, I have a vague understanding, but I try not to get too much into the details because human relationships disgust me. So Jessica and I are going to log off and then we're going to go have a long and uncomfortable conversation that I never wanted to have with a grown woman more two years older than me. But um, looks like that's what's going to happen. I love conversations. Oh, good. All right. They're fun. Well, I am the actual real Janelle Como. And I am definitely probably not Janelle Como, but I'm definitely not Jonathan Luna. She's definitely not. She might be Jessica Pigeot. Possibly. But together, the two of us are fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous. fabulous. Thanks for listening. 
All right, we made it through another week. Thanks again for listening. Just want to say that if you do manage to collect the $100,000 reward in this case, I think that you should give me a finder's fee because my student loans will be paid off when my grandkids are dead at this rate. Um, You can probably tell from this episode that we do record these episodes well in advance. Um, I do promise to all my Edmonton friends, I have not moved back to Edmonton. I am in New York City. Jessica is in Vancouver, but you're going to be hearing us make reference to living in Edmonton for quite a few weeks to come. And then we'll switch over to bragging about our glamorous new lives in the city. Um, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. We're available at all the usual places where you can find podcasts. And if you want to write us a review, if you like us, preferably if you like us, leave us a review. You can leave them on iTunes. You can leave us comments on SoundCloud. You can leave reviews pretty much anywhere that you can find podcasts. It really helps us out. You can also follow us on social media if you just can't wait to hear our voices and see our faces next week. Not that you ever really see our faces, but you can find us on Facebook at Fat French and Fabulous. You can follow us on Twitter at Fat French Fab. And if you only like one of the hosts, that's totally fine, as long as it's me. You can find me on Twitter at VeryBadLama, or you can find Jessica at I Am Not a Lungfish because she continues to not be a lungfish. That's everything from us this week. We will hear from you, or you'll hear from us next Wednesday.